Welcome to Work and Play, the award-winning podcast of Kinsanji Brooks Smith & Profit, where we discuss employment news and provide practical insights and tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Susan Basrud-Wilson. With me today is a new voice, one of my partners from Kinsanji's Winston-Salem office, Bill McMahon. Bill, I hope you realize how momentous today is. You are my first ever guest. Susan, that's awesome. I, I didn't realize that when you invited me to be on the episode, but uh, I hope you know what you got yourself into. Bill, you and I go way back, and our history includes a seven-day jury trial, so I think I'm going to take the chance. But um, yeah, this is a big day. I think we should mark the occasion in some special way. And you know, our good friend Sherry Silverman sang karaoke on the show once. Are you up for that? I tell you what. If you still want this podcast to be award-winning, I would highly recommend that I don't go there, <laughs> at least for my first appearance on the show. Uh, I actually might have the worst singing voice of any person I personally know. Fair. And that's just as well because I'm sorry, but that was a total lie. I just couldn't resist the temptation to see if you would actually sing or what you would say. And really, that's the whole theme of today's show because I want to follow up on our last episode and do a Reasonable Minds Differ Part 2, this time Susan versus Bill. I love it. So I did listen to the first episode, and my understanding is that the basic premise of this two-part uh, episode here is that when it comes to legal strategy, it can be more art than science sometimes, right? And as a follow-up, you know, some things are not necessarily as cut and dry as we would like to make them out to be, especially when it comes to legal strategy and that reasonable minds might differ in some areas. That's it exactly. In our first episode, as you know, we covered a few gems like should your handbook be 698 pages long? How to best handle social media hoopla? How much progressive discipline is the right amount? And is working from home fabulous or foul? Sherry and I came to a lot of the same conclusions, but we'll have to see if you and I do the same. It sounds good. Let's, let's kick it off with this one then. When are non-competition and non-solicitation agreements appropriate? And a related question to that, should they be used for all roles in all companies? Well, I think the last question is far easier than the first. Employers obviously should not have every single employee sign a restrictive covenant because that would both be silly and run afoul of, of state laws in some places. Illinois, for example, prohibits employers from entering into a non-compete agreement with a low-wage employee, which right now means folks who earn less than $13 an hour. Several other states like Maine and Washington rolled out similar laws in 2019. That is a really good point, and just one of the many examples I could point to of non-competition agreements generally being so state-specific. This area, there's a ton of traps for the unwary, uh, especially for employers that have operations in multiple states, and keeping track of all the different states' approaches to non-competition agreements is right up there as far as a really nuanced area you need to be aware of. In your opinion, though, Susan, when do you think a non-compete or non-solicitation agreement generally is appropriate? Bill, I'm going to say that it depends. Uh, the classic lawyer answer. 
<laughs> I stand by my comment. My first question in this analysis is what business interest is involved and is it objectively worthy of protection? Things like customer lists and trade secret information is generally protected, which creates that classic situation of a salesperson with a non-compete, non-solicitation agreement. However, if your employee flips burgers for minimum wage after an hour or two of training, then I'm going to have a hard time arguing that there is a protectable business interest there. I absolutely hear you on that. That point that you mentioned, the protectable business interest, really gets at the heart of these situations. And you have to really ask yourself, what are you trying to protect? If it is something, like you mentioned, Susan, like a trade secret or something, then that's completely legitimate and and a reason you might want to have one of these types of agreements. But otherwise, you get into the territory of just trying to prevent ordinary competition where it makes it less likely the agreement is going to be enforceable by a court in the first place if it were ever to be litigated. Right. And as we mentioned earlier, where you are operating is always a relevant question because, well, state laws vary somewhat. All the ones I've looked at discuss whether the agreement is reasonable in terms of scope, which generally includes things like geographic, temporal, or subject matter restrictions. I absolutely agree on that. And I actually think this is one area where reality is far beyond what the legal framework is, if you will, for these. Are you saying the law is lagging behind reality? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Uh, And I know that happens a lot, but in this area in particular, because as you mentioned, most states, when they analyze these agreements, they are looking at it from a time and geography restriction standpoint. And the geography piece in particular gets very tricky when you're dealing with companies that have operations, say, across the United States or even just sporadically across the United States, not necessarily in every state. You get into the question of whether geography is a great fit, and that leads into the question of does it actually make more sense maybe to go the non-solicitation route as opposed to the non-competition route? I think that's a great question. Here's another interesting question that I don't think I know the answer to, even though we've worked together for like over 10 years. What's your favorite TV show, Bill? Oh, definitely. Of all time, I would definitely say it's Lost, and it's not particularly close. Um, And I know that's going to be a very divisive answer for the listeners of the podcast. But even the controversial ending to Lost, it's actually kind of grown on me over the years. And I'm not going to spoil it for anyone that hasn't, of course, seen the show. But if you have not checked it out, Lost is on Hulu now, and you can crank out a bunch of episodes while you're at home, obviously. And I'll just say this about Lost, not to get too deep into it, but it has unbelievable character development, and there's just no show like it, in my in my opinion. Interesting. I have heard good things about Lost, but I admit I have never watched a single episode. In in true confession on my end, I never watched it when it first came out. I saw, you know, kind of the blurb on TV about it. It looked to me kind of like a Survivor sitcom, and I just passed. But I later gave it a chance, and I absolutely do not regret it. It is fantastic. Well, if I can tear myself away from Gilmore Girls and all the reality shows I've been binge watching on Netflix, I will maybe give it a try. 
Okay, moving on. I have one for you that is kind of in a similar vein to the non-compete question. Should every company have an employee sign a mandatory arbitration agreement? After all, the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly found that arbitration agreements are enforceable and arbitrations don't involve a bunch of people who are often not your peers. Exactly. I think the arbitration agreement question is another one you really need to think about carefully. On paper, and and you read this all the time, right? You obviously in having an arbitration agreement, you do mitigate the risk of having a runaway jury verdict on an employment claim. As a counterpoint to that, though, I would ask how many employment claims actually get all the way to a jury trial in the first place? And a related point to that is, what do your expenses look like in defending a traditional lawsuit versus defending an arbitration? So I would say overall, this is an area where employers really need to consider not just jury versus arbitration, but the journey, if you will, and the litigation expense along the way of having a lawsuit versus arbitration. I think that's a good point. I am aware of a couple of different situations where our colleagues are waiting for 50 or more individual arbitration demands to come in following the um, decertification of a collective action or the upholding of an arbitration agreement, which may or may not be something that the company originally anticipated when they rolled them out. Further, I will note that state court judges do not always uphold arbitration agreements, so it's not even necessarily a guaranteed win. It's a very good point. That last point on upholding arbitration agreements, to your point, you may actually have a little preliminary litigation, if you will, to even get a motion to compel arbitration granted in the first place. That, that's a great point. The other point you mentioned about individual arbitration demands following decertification of, say, a class action or a collective action, it's another good point. Uh, what's happening now in... I'm full of good points, Bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You are, Susan. Uh, but but really along these lines, what's happening now is we have some case law supporting class action waivers in the arbitration context. Was well, a follow-up to that, folks are now just filing a bunch of individual arbitration demands. And instead of having to you know, have a situation where you're defending, say, a class action and arbitration... Now you have 50 individual claims, each of which has their own arbitration costs and paths associated with it. Which is related to something you mentioned earlier. Arbitrations can be expensive depending on you know what group you're in front of, It's if it's the American Arbitration Association or whatnot. And I do think that this question is a great example of the classic lawyer advice, it depends. Um, you're going to want to think through this question based on your company, your risk tolerance, and your litigation history, and then talk about it to your lawyer, particularly if you operate where state-specific laws come into play, <laughs> California. <laughs> it, absolutely. I, I have another one for us. Uh, what about no rehire provisions in separation and release agreements? Should employers always insist on a no rehire provision? Well, it depends. You're going to go with that again? (laughs) I know, I know. However, that is the point of this exercise, right? Reasonable minds can differ. So 
I am going to need more information in order to make a recommendation. I don't think there's a blanket rule here. If a fabulous employee leaves because he's relocating for family reasons, why would you not want to rehire him if if the opportunity arises? And if you fired someone for theft that was recorded on the video surveillance system, why on earth would you want that person back? You know, that sort of a distinction reminds me of another side note here, since we're talking about no rehire provisions. This is one of my biggest pet peeves with employer documentation, not indicating on the termination paperwork for an employee, whether that employee is eligible for rehire, number one, but number two, indicating the wrong answer about the eligibility for rehire based on the type of termination you're dealing with. So exactly like you were talking about, Susan. So, you know, when it comes to an employee being terminated, you're so close to being done with the documentation without having to worry about documentation for this particular person anymore since they're on their way, you know, out the door of your company. But just don't mess up this part of the, is the employee eligible for rehire? I feel like this is a hashtag ask me how I know. Ask me if I've had this case before. Indeed it is. (laughs) All right. Here's my next question. We have talked about a couple of things where we recommended you get a lawyer involved. But really, should you pay good money to have an employment lawyer respond to that charge of discrimination you just got in or that wage claim? For this one, I think you really need to be honest with yourself. For example, is this the first time that you or your company has received, say, a charge of discrimination from the EEOC or Department of Labor? If that's the case... You are in uncharted territory. You don't know what you don't know. So yes, you absolutely should retain an employment attorney to have him or her prepare a response for you and obviously work with you in crafting that response. Um, On the flip side of that, though, if you've handled charges before and say you even have a system internally of kind of working through these, then you have a better comfort level of who you're dealing with. And it's okay at that point to have outside counsel maybe involved to a lesser extent in the preparation process. Uh, you know, for example, I know several of our clients who have lawyers in-house say that routinely handle charges or maybe even human resources folks that handle charges. But even then, when they have that structure in place, they'll often reach out to us to discuss strategy for the response, review certain aspects of it, or maybe even exhibits for a response. Yeah, well... I realize that my response here is going to sound totally self-serving, and yes, it is, but I also sincerely believe that talking to your favorite labor and employment lawyer is worth it in these circumstances. If you have in-house employment counsel, fantastic. If you want to write it and have somebody else give it a read, that's great too. But please, if you don't talk to us, talk to somebody who is familiar with the world of employment law. It may actually save you money in the end. That is solid life advice right there. No, no question. We find often that if an employer is too close to a scenario, there is some nuance that can be missed. And a related point to that is, you know, employers, of course, are experts on their own internal operations and policies and even kind of the inside baseball, if you will, behind an employment situation or termination. But putting all of those thoughts down on paper for a third party, especially, say, the EEOC to understand, it's a completely different animal. 
Uh, That's true. And we've also all seen situations where an employer is trying so hard to do the right thing and to show that they followed the law, that they actually volunteer information that is, is largely irrelevant to the allegations at hand, but it might be harmful to the company in some other way. Right. You really need to focus on what is being asked and what is being challenged in a given, say, administrative charge with the EEOC. You want to respond to that charge, but you don't need to go beyond that and potentially open up other unrelated areas of inquiry. It's like we tell our clients in debt prep, listen to the question, think about the question, answer the question, and then stop. That's exactly right. All right. I have another question for you, Bill. Annual reviews, yes or no? I guess I need a little bit more on that one. All right. Well, I'm sure you've seen all kinds of articles about how millennials don't like annual reviews. They prefer ongoing, consistent feedback. And hey, I hear that millennials are somewhere around half the workforce right now. So all the companies really need to take that into account, right? Well, I guess let me first start off by saying that I cannot stand generalizing about different generations. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I, I it is that's another pet peeve of mine actually. I do think that different people are motivated in different ways and by different things. I don't think that's necessarily consistent across generations. I I really think the answer to this on the annual review piece goes to the type of culture you want to develop in your business, you know, as an employer. If you have folks that are craving more frequent feedback and and you've gotten that from them, uh, wouldn't it be a good idea to give them that sort of feedback then? I agree. And I do think the answer really does depend on your company, your culture, your resources, and your needs. Maybe you do want to move away from the traditional review process. And maybe you instead think about implementing processes that allow you to give feedback more regularly and less formally. You could consider providing a mechanism for employees to be able to request many evaluations or alternative pathways to set short and long-term goals. However, I am in total agreement and in favor of not bashing millennials or any other generation and, and painting them all with one broad brush. Exactly. It, there could come a time where your attorney could be a millennial. <laughs> or maybe he or she already is and, and you just don't know it. Uh, going to the annual review piece, though, and kind of building off of that, Susan, uh, some employers are moving from performance appraisals altogether, right? And that can get extremely interesting from the standpoint of defending what I'll call performance-related cases later on if you have a termination that turns into, say, an EEOC charge or a lawsuit. I could see a scenario where not having any sort of performance um, documentation could turn into a problem. I mean, I'm going to assume that if someone is terminated on the basis of performance, you are tracking and recording that performance in some way, and further that the employee is aware of his or her performance and the applicable performance expectations before you discipline or terminate him or her, right? I mean, that's that's my hope. Exactly. And really that goes to kind of the cardinal principle of any employment situation we deal with or even the cases we defend. And that is you should never have an employee that is surprised by your decision. 
whether it's a promotion decision or a termination, the employee should know it's coming. Now, whether or not that's through formal performance appraisals or not, you know, again, reasonable minds can differ, but you don't want the employee to ever be surprised. I love that in your very first episode, Bill, you talked about some of your soapboxes because our regular listeners know that I myself have several. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, and I was happy to have a chance to do it. And I guess along those lines on the soapbox, you know, I, one of the things that does really get to me, just going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, is, is getting that paperwork correct on the no rehire question. That is a big one in my mind. I do love paperwork. So we have another tradition here on Work and Play. We like to end the episode with a funny story or an amusing anecdote from the life of an employment lawyer. Um, That kind of ties in with our episode. Does anything like that come to mind, Bill? Absolutely. And, And I've been alluding to it all episode, and so I'll just go there. I, I have a story directly on point to the no rehire paperwork. All right. All right. So this was a scenario several years back. I was defending the deposition of a human resources employee in a case who was point blank asked the question of why the plaintiff was not eligible for rehire. So another, I think, yeah, I think I know where this is going, though. Exactly. So, so on the paperwork, of course, the box was checked that the that the employee was not eligible for rehire. So that's fine, um, except the question of why came up. And in her deposition, the human resources employee blurted out, of course, in the heat of the moment, that the employee was not eligible for rehire because she had brought an EEOC charge and lawsuit against the company. Hmm. Exactly. Now, fortunately, I was able to rehabilitate her later in the deposition. And the case, of course, ended up okay. And we can all laugh about it now. But seriously, don't create evidence of retaliation just because you're annoyed with a question during a deposition. We could do a another episode on why deposition preparation is so important. But thank you for joining me today, Bill. Susan, it was great to be on the episode. Thanks for inviting me. Before we sign off, I want to make our typical request of our listeners. If you like this podcast, please let us know. Follow us, rate us, or leave us a written review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts so that other people who are interested in employment law can find us. We hope you tune in again next month for the next episode.